have your Bibles, we are continuing our trek through the book of Jeremiah. We are in Jeremiah chapter 35 through 37 this evening. If anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand and Richard will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Jeremiah 35 through 37 tonight. Stephen did that just to make you feel useful, that's all, Richard. Probably doesn't really need a Bible, just... Like, you know, no one's, no one's raising a hand. I'll, I'll raise my hand. Jeremiah chapter 35. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather tonight, Lord, to be in your presence, to worship you with our hearts, uh, just sing praises to you. And now, Lord, we have the opportunity to study your word. And we pray, Lord, that... Your blessing would be upon our time, Lord, that we would gain not only information but application in our lives, that we might serve you better, know you better, Lord, and and bring glory to your name in a greater capacity. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Bless the kids downstairs as we minister to them as well. Uh, We just commit our night to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday morning, we looked at, I think it was two weeks ago, the time when Jesus was on retreat with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. And, and Jesus then asked his disciples, well, who do men say that I am? And the, the disciples came back with, well, here's what the Gallup poll says about you. It's, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But it's interesting that there were some people who mistook Jesus, the Son of God, for Jeremiah. I mean, what a compliment to Jeremiah. I mean, he lived 600 years before Christ, but he must have been a Christ-like person. I think Jeremiah was probably one of the godliest men in the Bible. The irony, though, is that despite the fact that in Jesus' day, Jeremiah was highly esteemed among the first, uh, Jeremiah was highly esteemed among the first century Jews, and in his own day, the 6th century BC, Jeremiah was very much hated and persecuted. And this man was a priest, he was a prophet, he's a, a patriot, and despite it all, He maintained his deep intimacy and fellowship with God. Spoke boldly the words God gave him to speak. He interceded with God on behalf of the people. And even though the Jews of his day turned a deaf ear to him, they refused to listen to his message, Jeremiah was faithful. Man, may that be said of all of us this evening. Now, as we come to chapter 35, again, understand that the book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order, but we're told what time it is by the beginning of, of, of the, the chapter, where, where it takes place. Last week we left off with Zedekiah as king, but now we're going all the way back 18 years to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah as king. Look at verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 35. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jehazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, his brothers and all his sons, and the whole household, household of the Rechabites, and I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which is by the chamber of the princes above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. Now, incidentally, the Jeremiah in verse 3 is not our Jeremiah. We know the prophet never had married, never had a son. This man was a, a Rechabite. Now, the Rechabites, they were an interesting group of people. They weren't true Hebrews. They were Kenites, a branch of the Midianites, a collection of nomadic tribes. These were the, the descendants of Jethro, 
who became Moses' father-in-law after he left Egypt when uh, Moses married uh, Zipporah. So there's a pretty intense backstory with the, with the Rechabites. As I said, they're not Hebrews, but they were nevertheless zealous followers of Jehovah. They were named after Rechab, but he wasn't the most famous Rechabite. That would be his son, uh, Jonadab. About 250 years before this scene in Jeremiah, Jonadab teamed up with Israel's king Jehu to kill the servants of Baal and thereby eliminate Baal worship from the, from the nation. It was a spiritual high point going on. And immediately after the slaughter of the servants of Baal, you read in 2 Kings 10, 28 and 29, Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. That is from the golden cast that were at Bethel and Dan. So Jonadab obviously disturbed King Jehu's half-heartedness and hypocrisy, and he thought about it, and about the sad history of Israel's disobedience to God over the centuries, and he may have determined that the city living among the Canaanites would keep leading to more compromise and more sin. So then he, he, he adopts, he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. He adopted a nomadic lifestyle and passed it on to his descendants. Some are who are these invited guests here in chapter 35. And we read here that, that God decides to throw a wine tasting party. Look at verse 2. Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them and bring to them the house of the Lord into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. Now, offering the Rechabites wine was the last thing you'd ever do under normal circumstances. I'll tell you why in a minute, but understand from time to time, God will ask you to do things that seem odd at first, but nevertheless, they have a profound purpose. See, God didn't ask Jeremiah to serve the Rechabites wine in order to tempt them because God doesn't tempt us. This was just another life illustration to give Jeremiah an opportunity to tell the leaders of Judah how unfaithful they had been to God's covenant. And so this is a big picture we have going on here. Look now at verse 5. Then I set before the sons of the house of Rechabites bowls of full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they said, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these, but all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have vineyard, field, or seed, but we have dealt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. So the, the, the Rechabites, the dwelling in Jerusalem is a temporary situation. It's really just in response to the Babylonian army coming and, and surrounding the region. And, but they were still committed to not compromising their beliefs. We're not going to compromise. We, we, we're taking a stand. They were nomads and they were plotting and stay that way. Pilgrims just passing through. They were just a small group of zealous believers who found themselves surrounded by folks who, who professed to believe in God but were living compromised sinful lives. I think the, the picture is clear for us. We live in a nation that professes to be Christian but the majority of the people around us clearly aren't saved. And many that are making carnal choices and disobedience to God's clearly revealed will. 
See, we therefore should be like the Rechabites, a small but zealous group of followers of Jesus who remain separated from the world, just, just passing through on our way to heaven. And like the Rechabites, you know, we all know that the world is going to offer you things you really ought to refuse. I think that's one of the, 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 the favorite strategies of Satan is to get you to conform or to compromise or to relax your biblical standards of character and conviction. Abraham, nephew's lot, comes to mind. He's a good example of this. All Satan had to do was to get him to look over towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Just take a glance. And soon Lot was living there as a defeated believer. But for Abraham, his part, you know, he just remained a nomad and, and finished strong. What is the world offering you this evening? For some, it could be alcohol. The Bible doesn't teach you you can't drink as long as you don't get drunk, but that doesn't mean you should drink. You might want to adopt the convictions of Jonadab, knowing that alcohol leads to mostly bad things. I mean, you've got to answer for yourself. What, what is the world offering you that really you ought to refuse? Clearly, there's, there are things in the Bible that, that, that we must refuse. But there are also things that we can choose to refuse in order to remain separated from this world. Nomads on our way home to be with Jesus. I think alcohol really provides a good example of this principle of true freedom. Yeah, it's possible to drink and not get drunk, but nobody becomes drunk who doesn't drink. There's always a possibility that that our freedom to drink will lead to the slavery of alcohol, abuse, and addiction. I think drinking has really become a, a widely popular among certain younger Christians today and Christian, even Christian ministers. Listen to this observation by a Pastor John MacArthur, his comments. He says this, If everything you know about Christian living came from blogs and websites, you might have the impression that beer is the principal symbol of Christian liberty. Whole websites are devoted to the celebration of brewed beverages They earnestly assure one another that most good theological discussion has historically been done in pubs and drinking places. They therefore love to meet for open dialogue on faith and culture, wherever beer is served, or better yet, right at the brewery. The connoisseurs among them serve their own brands and even offer lessons on how to make home brew. Mixing booze with ministries often touted as a necessary means of penetrating Western youth culture, and conversely, abstinence is deemed a sin to be repented of. After all, in the culture where cool is everything, what could be a better lubricant for one's testimony than a frosty pint? End quote. Now, you just don't know where alcohol is going to lead you. It can be the, your greatest exercise of freedom to say no to your liberty and enjoy, go on enjoying life without becoming enslaved to something or to someone other than Jesus. I like the way Pastor Greg Laurie puts it. He puts it this way. Look, I'm all for relevance. We need to make sense to the people we are reaching, but let's not lower our standard in order to extend our reach. Let's not trade reverence for relevance. I think for us to seek to live godly lives is very relevant and very different than what the world has to offer. That's how we will turn our world upside down instead of the world turning us upside down. So the Rechabites said, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, nor your sons forever. God was now going to use them as an example uh, because of their faithfulness. Look at verse 12. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my word, says the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. 
But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. I have also sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way, and men your doings, and do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers. But you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of the host, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard, and I have called to them, but they have not answered. So God uses the Rechabites as a living parable to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judah. I think we too are considered a a living letter as Christians. People read us to find out about God. Our lives are no less a living parable. In fact, it's even more of one than the Rechabites because we're representing Jesus Christ. Again, it wasn't wrong for the Jewish people to drink wine so long as they didn't get drunk, but it was wrong for the Rechabites to drink wine because they, they, they made a commitment not to drink. But God wasn't commending these men for their personal, personal standards. He was commending them for their faithfulness to follow their father's command. And the message to the nation was clear. If the command of mere man, Jonadab, was respected and obeyed by his family for over two centuries, why on earth isn't the people of Israel and Judah obeying the command of Almighty God? A command that the prophets repeated over and over again. If family tradition was preserved with such dedication, why was the very law of God treated with such, such disrespect? Now, God is going to honor the Rechabites for their commitment. Look at verse 18. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Because they were faithful, God will favor the Rechabites. God, God loves obedience. He loves faithfulness. The Rechabites will always have a representative before God. In fact, according to the Jewish Mishnah, they had a special day of the year where it was their honor to, to, to collect firewood for the altar in the temple there. I suppose maybe one descendant of, of Jonadab Jonah is going to hang out in the throne of heaven today and they're going to have a special place in Jesus' administration when he returns to the earth. And just, just a, honoring them for their faithfulness. Okay, chapter 36, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So now we're, we're, we're moving to the fourth year of Jehoiakim, around the first time Nebuchadnezzar threatened Jerusalem. This was 19 years before the final fall of the city, about halfway through the 40-year ministry of the prophet of Jeremiah. Verse 2, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Take the scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. And maybe that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I propose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. See, the Jews had a a deaf ear to God's warnings. But perhaps, saying if they had a book, you know, something they they could hold in their hands, the the scrolls to look at, then maybe they would read and they would listen and they would turn. So God tells Jeremiah to, to do a, a self-publish his God-given messages. So verse 4, Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah. Baruch was Jeremiah's assistant. And Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah 
all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. Uh, I like that. This is kind of an interesting illustration of inspiration, how the, how the Bible came into being. The Lord's word was revealed to Jeremiah. Jeremiah in turn related it to Baruch, who actually wrote the words down on parchment. That's just the way the inspiration of the scriptures work. Whether it be Jeremiah or John or Paul or, or Peter, the word of the Lord was revealed to these men. It was revealed and recorded and, and finally, you know, regarded as God's word that we can hold in our hands. This is, this is the word of the Lord. This is also a good illustration of the power of God's word, not the mouthpiece. If God's word is, 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 is that powerful and sharper than the two of the sword, but, but God can use anyone to get his word out. Even just the word itself. I think when the printing press was invented, the first thing ever printed was a Bible. And today we have so many means, so many ways of communicating the word of God. And we should use them all for the glory of God. Look at verse 5. Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I'm confined. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. You go, therefore, and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction, the words of the Lord, in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from their cities. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against the people. Again, just, just that hope. Maybe this will be the time. Maybe this will be the place where it will click and the people will repent. Now, we don't know why Jeremiah was confined and unable to go to the temple himself, but God had told Jeremiah that the point of the scroll was to lead men to repentance. And Jeremiah told Baruch it's the same thing, hoping that this would be the time again that they would listen, that they would repent. I think we need reminding from time to time as Christians that God is for us and not against us. And it's His Word that goes forth that, that's there to convict us and to change us. And it's Word that, that goes forth in order to convert people. God's hope is that people will turn from their sin. Now, sometimes that message that God gives is a message of kindness and goodness. Romans 2, 4, which says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And people can hear a, a gospel message presented to them and tell them how good God is and what God has done for them, and, and they can respond and repent and, and come to Christ. But sometimes the message needs to be that of judgment. Producing fear, such as in Jeremiah's day, Jude, verse 20 through 23 says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. He says this, And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So some save with, with, with compassion, another with with judgment, God's heart is the same. It's for us to turn from our sin and turn to Him. But the work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives and in the lives of the people around Him are, are individual and where that person is at and how they need to hear the gospel and come to the Lord. Verse 8. And Baruch, instead of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now, now verse 8, it, it really jumps ahead and tells us Baruch did exactly what God told him to do. But the details of how he did it, we're going to read. That takes up the end of the chapter. Why did he tell us Baruch did all of this before giving us the details? I think it's, it's God's way of telling us that where, where God's calling, we have God's enabling. If God calls you to do something, he's going to enable you to do that which he's called you to do. 
I remember when I was younger teaching on this, this uh, same subject. You know, if I told my son Matthew when he was six or seven years old, hey, go pick up that 100-pound weight and carry it into the other room. I knew he, he couldn't do it. Now if I told him to do it, he could do it with one hand. It wouldn't be no big deal. But it, it, it's enabled. If you're, you know, God's not going to ask us to do something that is not going to enable us to do it. So God wasn't telling Brute to do something that he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't equip him to accomplish. We can be certain that, that God enables us to obey him. Now look at what Brute did. Verse 9. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. Then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he then went down to the king's house into the scribe's chamber and there all the princes were sitting. Elishama the scribe, Deliah the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan the son of Akbor, Gemariah the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. Then Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the hearing of the people. Therefore all the princes sent Jehudai the son of Nathaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, to Barak, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. Scholars have debated, you know, over the exact content of the scroll, whether it was everything Jeremiah had said up to this point or just a portion. Either way, it was a whole lot of reading in one setting. And just as he finished reading it publicly, Baruch then is invited to give another private reading to this group of nobles. Uh, you know, it's just like God to expand your ministry. Hey, you go share over here. Well, now I want you to share this over here. Come and share this over here. I think we can expect new doors to open as you step out in faith. Verse 16. Now it happened when they heard all the words that they looked in fear from one another and said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king of all these words. They're shook up by what they, they heard was written in the scrolls. They have to wonder, were they shook up because of what God was saying about them and how judgment was coming and, 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 you know, in fear of what's going to happen? Or were they shook up and afraid of what the king would do when he found out that what Jeremiah had written? Either, either way, you know, the Lord allowed them to be shook up. You know, I think sometimes it's a better place when, when God's word shakes us up. You know, it causes us to, to make changes in our lives to draw close to the Lord. Verse 17. And they asked Baruch, saying, tell us now, how did you write all these words at his instruction? So they want to verify the authorship. Baruch says, hey, Jeremiah, he dictated them to me. Look at verse 18. So Baruch answered and said, he proclaimed them with his mouth, all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then the princess says to Baruch, go and hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. Well, at least they're looking out for the prophet and, and Baruch. They, they knew his message is not going to sit well with the king. I mean, he could get violent, become very, could be very hazardous to Jeremiah's health. And Baruch says, okay, we got it. You guys go hide. We're going to take care of this. Verse 20. And they went to the king, into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elisha, the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elisha, the scribe's chamber. 
And Jehudai read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. <laughs> you know what's going to happen. And it happened when Jehudai had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. You know, it's almost like a movie. You see the, 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 the paper there, scroll, he's reading it. You see the fire, they look at the fire, look at this, read it, and you know what's going to happen. Somebody had labeled Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim the Ripper. I don't know, maybe you heard a similar situation with one of our founding fathers as a nation. It was Thomas Jefferson who sat in his new presidential mansion in Washington in 1803. He opened up his Bible, not to study it, but, but, but to cut it. He scoured the text of Jesus' greatest teachings, sliced out his favorite portions, and glued them into an empty notebook. He called it the Philosophies of Jesus. Now that book was lost to history, but in 1819... He started over and created a new version called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, commonly referred to as the Jefferson Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. This volume was largely kept secret and passing among Jefferson's relatives until 1895 when a librarian in the Smithsonian discovered it, and in 1904, Congress published it. The Smithsonian described Jefferson's editing process like this. Jefferson created his own gospel by taking a sharp instrument, perhaps a penknife, to existing copies of the New Testament and pasting up his own account of Christ's life and teachings. I mean, maybe he got maybe he got the same idea from from you know Jehoiakim or here of Judah of cutting up sections that he liked and didn't like. But think of ways that people you know today cut up the Bible. One commentator has labeled them liars, liberals, and the lukewarm. The you know, liars are the are the cultists, you know, where they they take God's word and and they deny clearly the doctrines taught in Scripture and they cut and they paste and they twist and they turn it to make the Bible say what it was never meant to say. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, you know, rather than let the Bible mean what it says, they they slice it and dice it and make it fit whatever they want it to say, and and with all sorts of false doctrine. Then you got the same done with the, the liberal circles, you know, it, it, in the name of what's called how higher criticism, where scholars dare to tell you what is and isn't the reliable word of God. Well, yeah, this, this is the word of God, but now this really couldn't have happened. You really can't believe that Jonah actually was swallowed by a well and, and it didn't happen. It's just a, it's an allegory. It, it's interesting. Jehoiakim cut up the scroll before he threw it into the fire. And, and I think that's what liberals do today. They don't just reject the Bible and throw it in the fire. They first have to try and cut it up and, and, and discredit its authority. It's not enough for liberals just to dismiss the Bible. They want to mock it. They want to refute it. They want to discredit it. I think for the last century, the Bible has been under attack like never before. I think the worst example of modern-day Jehoiakim is a lukewarm pastor who, who believes that the Bible is, is the inerrant Word of God, but rather than teach the whole counsel of God, he only addresses little portions that are his favorites or that won't spark any controversy. I mean, you don't even have to dull your blade. You can eliminate whole passages of scriptures by just never dealing with them. Well, if the, if the baptism of the Holy Spirit makes someone uncomfortable, then, or the reality of hell is going to make the, make the listeners uncomfortable, or the pastor, well, I just avoid it. Just won't talk about it. Won't go there. We see it happening. You know, Christians, we often, we can make the same mistakes ourselves by always reading the, the same passages to the neglect of others. 
I think for some of us, our highlighters is actually our penknife, only reading our favorite verses. You know, I've shared this before. I have a Alexa at our home, and sometimes at night, I can't sleep, and I'll just say, you know, I've called it computer instead of Alexa because I like Star Trek, and so I say computer instead of Alexa. And when I'm watching Star Trek, sometimes they say computer, and then the computer answers and says, well, what do you want? And I've got to turn it off, and I'm not talking to you. But anyway... The other night I was, I was listening to, I'm laying in bed, I'm thinking, I just, you know, instead of just picking a book, I'm just gonna pick some passages that I like. And so computer, you know, read Joshua chapter, you know, chapter one. So it reads chapter one, you know, not, not the computer, it's a voice region. So, alright, now read John chapter three. And, and I went through and I'm just picking out my favorite sections of scripture, you know, going, I wanna hear this, I wanna hear that. I thought, you know what, that's how easy we can do that. Well, I'm just going to read this section of scripture. I just want to read this section of scripture, and and, and I want to I want to read that one. Paul told the Ephesians in Acts twenty twenty seven, "I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God." I love that. You know, after the book of Jeremiah, we'll hit limitations, and then the Song of Solomon. I too can be able to say what Paul said: "I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God." I can't wait. Listen, don't ever forget. We're responsible for all the book, the whole book, from Genesis to Revelation. Reminds me of a story of a, of a son who went into seminary, and his father was worried about the school's liberal leanings and what it might do to his son's faith. And so before he left home, he told his son, don't let them take Jonah from you. He knew that Jonah contained some miraculous elements which made it a favorite target for liberals. When the son came home, dad asked him, Did you, do you still have Jonah? The son said, no, dad, I don't, but neither do you. His dad was appalled. Certainly I do. His son, his son said, no, you don't. Just check and see. The father retrieved his Bible, and sure enough, Jonah was ripped out. His son said, I did that before I went into seminary. What's the difference if I lose Jonah through doubt and you lose, lose it through neglect? I'd smack him upside his head and say, why'd you rip out of my Bible? But, I, you know, it's just the story. But you get the point. Well, back to Jehoiakim, the word was read, hoping that there would be repentance and the people would yet once again have a fear of the Lord and turn back to God. Yet, look at verse 24. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Man, they should have feared the righteous hand of God. Verse 25. Nevertheless, Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemariah employed the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiah, the son, king's son, Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdiel, to seize Baruch, the scribe of Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them. I like that. The Lord hid them. God takes care of his servants. He's able to protect them. But that's what God even told Jeremiah back in chapter 1, in the beginning of the study of this book, in Jeremiah 1.19. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. The Lord delivered them. The Lord hid them. He's just fulfilling a promise that God made to Jeremiah. Verse 27. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Take yet another scroll. And write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here? 
Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity, and I'll bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them. But they did not heed. Jehoiakim's son, Jeconiah, reigned just three months before he was taken to Babylon, and that left Jehoiakim with no one to sit on the throne. The final king of Judah was his brother, Zedekiah. Verse 32, Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it, at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. So Jehoiakim's attempt at destroying God's word was thwarted, uh, and in fact, every other attack, attack at, at you know uh, destroying God's word has been thwarted ever since as well. 300 A.D., the Roman Emperor Diocletian ordered the destruction of all Bibles. Possessing a Bible was a capital crime. Yet 50 years after Diocletian's death, the next Roman Emperor ordered the copying of 50 new Bibles, paid for at the government's expense. See, God has preserved and will continue to preserve His Word. Kings will come and kings will go, but the Word of God abides forever. It's a true story about a man named Waldo. He was lost and people were searching for him. Everyone said, where's Waldo? No, that's not the story. <laughs> Had a weird hat on. No, he was a man. He was a man during the 1100s, dark age of the Roman church, who came to know the Lord and he translated uh, the Gospels, and was going from town to town preaching the Gospel in the language that people could understand. And the, and the movement grew, and they became known as the, the, the Waldenses, and were considered heretics by the Roman Church, simply because they held to the strict teaching of God's Word. They considered the Bible to be like an anvil, and they had a saying, Hammer away, ye hostile hands, your hammers break, God's anvil stands. I like that. Listen, no other book has survived the centuries unaltered as the Bible has. Voltaire once said, the Bible will be a short-lived book. The years proved Voltaire to be wrong in the very house in which he lived and was used to store Bibles. The communist dictionary used by the Soviet state publishing house describes the Bible as a collection of fantastic legends without scientific support. Lenin once declared, I expect to live long enough to attend the funeral of all religion. Lenin has long since been dead and the Soviet Union is gone and the Bible and religion has never been more alive. Thomas Paine, 1737 to 1809, once stated, within 50 years the Bible will be a forgotten book. But years later, the very press he used to, to print his statement was being used to print Bibles. Despite a myriad of enemies and the constant attack uh, on the Bible, the Bible remains. It's proven. It's indestructible. It will last. The Word of God will last forever. Okay, chapter 37. Chapter 37, fast forwards now to a, a later day. Look at verse 1. Now, King Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord, which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. Boy, that really summarizes the whole book, doesn't it? <laughs> that none of them gave heed to the words spoken by Jeremiah. Verse 3. And Zedekiah, Zedekiah, the king, sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Maaseiah, the priest, to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Pray now 
to the Lord God, to the Lord our God for us. Remember in our last study together that the Zedekiah let all the slaves go because he figured, hey, it's all over. Babylon's coming. And, you know, the, the, the armies of Babylon are out, right outside our door. And, and, and uh, you know what? It's all over. So all you slaves, you can, you can go and, and we're going to set you free. We're going to do this, this thing for the Lord. We're going to set you free. And then all of a sudden, when the armies of Babylon want to go fight against Egypt, Zedekiah said, oh, wait a minute. Just kidding. You guys need to all come right back. I mean, they, 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 you know, he made it look like what we call a panicked piety. Trying to make things right with God when you're about to get caught doing something that, oh, this, this will please God and maybe this won't happen to me. And, and you know, sometimes then God comes through and, and it's like, see you later, God, next crisis. Well, here's another example of that. The Jews had rejected Jeremiah's message for 40 years, try to silence him, even kill him. But now they're in trouble. You know, the, the Babylonian armies are at, at, the, at the door and, and, and they come to him for prayer. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar are on the way. Please intercede for us. And as we'll see, same result as before. Once the Babylonian army left, Babylonian army left to fight Egypt. Hey, hey we're okay. No, no problem now. Look at verse four. Now Jeremiah was coming and going among the people, for they had not yet put him in prison. Then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news of them, they departed from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, "Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel: Thus you shall say to the king of Judah." who sent you to me to inquire of me, behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt, to their own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against the city and take it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourself, saying, the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. For though you have defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, and there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up every man in his tent and burn the city with fire. Basically, listen, your problem isn't the Babylonians. Your problem is with God. God was bringing and using the Babylonians as tools to bring his judgment. And their destiny has been ordained by God. Nothing was going to change that. Now, I think we think our problems, our time, is our circumstances and if our surroundings change and everything's going to be all right. But seldom is that true. No, our problems are not our job or our wife or kids or school. It might be you. It might be, you know, a conflict with, with people, but it's not with God. I mean, here the Lord reminds them, do not deceive yourself saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. In other words, they're going to come and, 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 and because of where you're at and your relationship with me and, and your, your not willingness to repent, God's will is going to play forth. Look at verse 8, 11. And it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for the fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. And when he was there in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard was there whose name was Arijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he seized Jeremiah the prophet saying, you are defecting to the Chaldeans. Oh, man. <laughs> Notice Arijah's ancestry. He was a grandson of a man named Hananiah. This was Jeremiah's old adversary. Remember, he was the guy that broke, that, that took the yoke that was on Jeremiah's shoulders, took it, tore it off, broke it into pieces, and said, "Man, you know, basically, you're lying. That's not going to happen. You know, God's going to, you know, defend us." And and uh, uh, just publicly refuting Jeremiah's message. Now Hananiah said, "Babylon will be toppled in two years." Jeremiah said, "Hananiah will be dead within a year." Guess who was right? 
<laughs> Hananiah died in two months. Now Hananiah's grandson, Arijah, arrests Jer- Jeremiah and accuses God's prophet of treason of defecting to the enemy. It makes you wonder, is this not you know, trying to get back for what happened with his, with his grandfather? Maybe Arijah is carrying out a personal vendetta. Verse 14. Then Jeremiah said, false. I'm not defecting to the Chaldeans. But he did not listen to them. So Arijah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princess. Jeremiah was a loyal patriot. Loved his country, loved his people. To be accused of defecting was a terrible and evil thing. Verse 15. Therefore the princes were angry with Jeremiah. And they struck him and put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe. For they had made that prison. Struck him probably means that they, they flogged him. A very, very seriously painful beating without regard to any trial whatsoever. You know, we talked about the similarities between Jesus and Jeremiah. We see the same thing happening here. Jesus taking the 40 lashes, save one without a proper trial, without any regard for his life. Here, since there were no prisons in, in Jerusalem, um, hold on a second. I did it again. <laughs> here, since there were no prisons in Jerusalem, they probably use an underground cistern, a tank, an empty uh, water reservoir, you know, that, a makeshift prison where, where they put him in. And then you look at this and go, man, life's not fair. And, and it's not fair. I mean, we all will experience uh, evil in our lifetime. It may not be on a, on a large scale like Jeremiah's beating and in, incarceration. It might be something most would consider petty. But either way, life can be unfair at times. But the Lord promises to see us through. Look at verse 16. When Jeremiah entered the dungeon in the cells, and Jeremiah had remained there many days, then Zedekiah the king sat and took him out. The king asked him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? Stop there for a moment. This is quite a scene. I mean, imagine you got the king, and he's all in his, you know, pomp and circumstance, sitting in his throne, clothed in his royal robes and golden crown, and standing across the, from the king is this old man, shivering from the cold, Hungry, bloodied, wounded. I mean, what, a, what a contrast. The evil king and, and the prophet of God. On top of the fact that we see this is a, a private meeting taking place. Zedekiah doesn't want to seem dependent on the man of God, yet he knows. He knows that Jeremiah speaks for the Lord. So he asks him, is there any word from the Lord? I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, here he is in all his... his his robes and everything, and thrones and wealth of the king, and he looks to Jeremiah and says, what does the Lord say? He should have been knowing what the Lord says. I think Zedekiah would gladly give all he has away to have what Jeremiah had at that moment, a relationship with God, the knowledge of God. Zedekiah should have heeded the words of the Lord from back in, back in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, where it says, thus says the Lord, do not let man... Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. That's what, what, what a, a Zedekiah should have been doing. Rather than wisdom or might or riches, Jeremiah had sought to know God. Now what he possesses, not what the king has, is suddenly in great demand. If you seek God instead of this material war, people may mock you and think you're crazy for a time. But man, when the chips are down, when they go through trial, who do they turn to first? Well, what does your Bible say about this? What does God say about What do you think about this? 
And, and that's what they do. Sadly, this king was a wimp. He was a royal in name only. He was the type of man who would agree with the last person he talked to. He was easily swayed. He started out pro-Babylonian and put into power by Nebuchadnezzar, but he inherited a pro-Egypt cabinet, and he played both sides to appease everybody. Zedekiah was, he was the, the, the quintessential politician. Again, much like Pilate at the crucifixion of Jesus. It's like a weather vane turned by whichever way the political wind blew in his favor. Yet Zedekiah actually had a great respect for Jeremiah. He knew Jeremiah was a true man of God. He always wanted to know what Jeremiah had to say. And Zedekiah recognized him as God's spokesman, but the king lacked guts to follow through on what the Lord said through Jeremiah. And ultimately, Zedekiah was more interested in political ramifications than he was in spiritual commitments. So in verse 17, King Zedekiah asked the prophet, Is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. (laughs) I mean, think about how tempting it would have been for Jeremiah to save his own skin by telling Zedekiah what he wanted to hear. Hey, you know what? Everything's good. It's going to be great. Uh, just get me out of this prison, give me some food, and it's going to be good. And he could have been free. But Jeremiah did not compromise. It's the same message he proclaimed for months. It just wasn't the message Zedekiah wanted to hear. I think one of the things for sure, it took great courage for Jeremiah to respond like that. He refused to soften God's word to the king one bit. He told him straight up, here it is. You know what? You shall be delivered into the hand of King Babylon, period. Moreover, verse 18, Jeremiah said to the king, Zedekiah, What offense have I committed against you and against your servants or against this people that you have put me in prison? Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? Jeremiah's going, Listen, you know, this prison has been horrible. I shouldn't be here. The prison should be for those lying prophets who, they ought to be in prison. They all lied to you. But what I said was true. Verse 20, therefore, please hear now, O Lord, or my Lord, the king, please let my petition be accepted before you and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. Get me out of here. I don't be in this prison anymore. He's pleading with the king for reassignment. This dungeon has been extremely hard on Jeremiah and he was old. The conditions were brutal. And, and I think had he returned there, he probably would have died there. Verse 21. Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison and that they should give him a daily a piece of bread from the Baker Street until all the bread in the city was gone. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So still in prison, but now a minimum security prison. And he was ordered a daily ration of bread. Now it doesn't sound like much to us, but compared to what he had been eating, a piece of bread from Baker Street, I mean, the, the, the main mark, that would have been this nutritional feast. It's like, oh, it would have just been amazing. And the king's mercy probably saved Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah was in prison, beaten all because of his faithfulness to the Lord, his faithfulness to preach the word of God. May we be just as faithful, and may God help us to give heed to the word of God and to the warnings of God. Jesus said in Revelation 2, 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And may God give us all just the ears to hear what he has to say to us as a church, as he leads us and guides us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the preservation of your word. Lord, that through the years, Lord, it hasn't disappeared. 
but it's God in the, in the more languages than we ever could have imagined. And Lord, we thank you for the power of the word that you have as your spirit speaks through your word to change people's lives. And Lord, though the people heard the word, they did not repent. Jeremiah was still faithful. And Lord, help us in these last days in which we're living in, Lord, knowing that judgment will come to this earth to be faithful as Jeremiah was. Regardless of the response, Lord, that we will be faithful to share your word, to live your word, that we would be a living parable, Lord, a living picture of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, your son. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you that you are a good king that takes care of us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.